encourage you in advance to get to the breakfast. It's a great event, great detail, great experts, just like today. Great experts, great detail on a very exciting prospect. Um, I walk to work some of the time. I walk right through the area, and I'm looking forward to seeing what the students are doing there. Um, we have a panel of knowledgeable expert people on this, I'll be honest and call it ambitious proposal. When you Fair enough. It, when you think of it as a lid, this is a lid that we're talking about going from Madison to Denny. And most of you probably thought about this lid as adding one or two more blocks. No, these people have a vision that's far broader than that. And I'd like to introduce Liz, who is I, one of the chief people behind the vision. Also, I want to point out her credibility. She's involved in this area in terms of transitioning from Capitol Hill to downtown. Her company developed Melrose Market. We've all been there, right? And remember, when we go to lunch, I go to lunch frequently at Melrose Market, it's empty because the people from downtown won't bridge the freeway. And that's what we're trying to address. Melrose Market, Chophouse Row, these are a few of Liz's credentials. And with that, I'd like to introduce Liz Dunn, our moderator today, and I'll let you take it from there. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Can, can everyone hear me? Okay, that's great. And I have to wear my glasses. To see you, I have to look over them and to see the piece of paper. This is what middle age is all about. Um, and I think, I think I am intended to introduce the other panelists. Is that correct? Um, sitting uh, next to me, I will do it in geographical uh, order, is Lyle Bicknell, who I've known for years. Um, uh, as someone at the city who has um, really played a role of facilitating good projects, especially in the public realm, and uh, to move forward and helped a lot with interagency difficulties um, in, in, in my world. Um, he's the principal urban designer with the City of Seattle's Office of Planning and Community Development, where he promotes urban design excellence throughout the built environment. He's also an affiliate faculty member of the University of Washington's College of Built Environments, where he received his architectural degree. Um, next in order is Scott um, Bunjukian. And Scott, I know quite well. I'm not exactly an objective moderator. I kind of need, I kind of need to um, be transparent about my affiliations with, you know, all of these people. But I'm uh, with Scott on the Lid I Five Steering Committee, and. Um, LIDI5 is the volunteer organization in the community that has pushed the project forward for many years. And I will say, on the shoulders of other citizen groups previous to ours who have also um, uh, pushed the idea forward. Um, Scott is currently an urban designer at Makers in Seattle. He's a practicing planner and urban designer with Makers, um, which is an architectural urban design and planning firm. He's a board member of The Urbanist and he co-chairs uh, the Lit I-5 Steering Committee, which I'm also a member of. He's passionate about preparing urban communities for climate change, creating diverse affordable housing options, and improving the design and access of public space. Um, next to Scott, we have Diana Quintana Solores. How did I do? Great. Okay, good. I've gotten <laughs> to know Diana quite well just over the uh, past year because she is on uh, the consultant team that is studying uh, doing the feasibility study um, of this for this concept. Um, so she's the deputy project manager for the feasibility study. Deanna specializes in the strategic development of complex urban projects, including public spaces and facilities that provide safe multimodal access. Um, she's the deputy project manager for this feasibility study, which was commissioned by the city of Seattle. She, she works for WSP, which is a very, very large engineering firm that works on big infrastructure projects around the world. Um, prior, prior to joining WSP and coming to Seattle, she led the authority of public space of Mexico City, where she helped transform approximately 125 acres into more livable, safe, and iconic places. And I learned just yesterday, I always thought Deanna was an engineer, but she's a biologist. <laughs> um, um, and then next to Diana, we have Robin Mayhew uh, uh, from S.AICP. Washdot. Washdot, sorry, it's a dot. Another yes. bureaucratic organization. <laughs> yes. She's the director of Washdot's Management of Mobility Division. And in this role, she leads near term and system wide transportation and operations planning for the Central Puget Sound region. 
Prior to that, she led long-range transportation planning at the Puget Sound Regional Council. She also previously served as director of Denver's Transportation Management Association and held federal level transportation positions. So we could not be more lucky than to have someone with, uh, with Robin's qualifications working with us from the WashDOT side. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about what a good collaboration this has, this has been to date. Um, the first question I'm gonna direct first to Lyle and then to Deanna, and I think they both have slides related to this, which is just to describe the feasibility study, the objectives, the primary questions that are trying to be answered and the approach to those and the scenario analysis, not just around structural feasibility, but also economic feasibility. Um, so Lyle, I will let you jump in first. Excellent. It is very much a feasibility study. As an urban designer, um, I really want it to be an urban design study. It's pretty much just every fiber of my body. But that's not what, <laughs> that's not what this is. This really is looking at a, a very clear-eyed analysis of the financial, technical constraints to help inform the next iteration or iterations, which then can very much be um, urban design, urban design studies. So we're not looking for a preferred alternative to come out of this process. It's really about understanding the problem better so that we can go to the next stage. So for folks who aren't familiar with um, the study, let me give you a few slides uh, to help you. Um, this is our area of focus. Um, as it was mentioned, between Denny um, to the north and Madison to the south, really through the, um, I, the section of I-5, right to the core of downtown. We chose this area to study for, can you hear me okay? I'm kind of dropping in and out. Um, uh, we chose this area to study for three key reasons. Um, the first of which is this study area is proximate to the convention center um, construction site, the convention center expansion. This feasibility study was a public benefit, was part of a public benefit package um, um, associated with the new uh, convention center. And so as a public benefit, it needed to be somewhat proximate um, to that expansion. The second reason we chose this area to study um, was for topographic reasons. It's the portion of I-5 that's most recessed rather than elevated as it gets um, to the south or um, kind of a steep retaining wall to the north. For the most part through this corridor, the highway is recessed and that makes for an easier, not an easy, but an easier um, opportunity to lid. And then the third reason we chose this area was because of the very high land values um, really on both sides of the corridor. And if anywhere um, a lid might begin to pencil, the value of the adjacent land here uh, suggests that this would be where you'd want to explore. So feasibility study, very focused on how you pay for it, um, what are the technical constraints, um, and ultimately the governance issues. How is it, how is it maintained? Um, what's the process for keeping it going uh, once it's established? Working with an advisory committee, we've developed for our analysis um, three scenarios, or what we're calling case studies. And again, these are not necessarily desirable outcome. In, in fact, I would argue none of these are ones that we necessarily would want to build, but they help us answer questions. They help us get to a better understanding of what the lid um, could be, and perhaps some of the natural limitations which are important as we begin to solve this problem. So I'm gonna walk you through these um, three scenarios so you can get a better understanding about some of our objectives and some of the, the limitations. Uh, the first two are bookends, the really extreme um, scenarios. The first is what we're calling the park lid, and that would be a scenario where the area um, is lidded um, with entirely public um, dollars with entirely public um, benefit. In other words, parks, civic space, limited civic space. Um, I think 
An analogous example for folks is the I-90 lid on Mercer Island. Basic green, um, single function, uh, essentially public, publicly maintained. The second bookend on the other extreme would be the private lid scenario. Um, one example that people might be aware of is Capitol Crossing in Washington, D.C. Again, um, corporate office, um, very little um, public amenity, but it does it what it needs to do, which is to lid a section of the freeway, which, of course, has that its own intrinsic benefits when you, when you do that. And um, obviously, it takes less public dollars, so that's a small wrinkle in this discussion, and one of the things that we've really teased out as we've begun to look at this challenge is what do you do with the on-ramps and off-ramps? Because those make litting complicated. On the other hand, we've come to realize through this process that they're actually, um, they serve a high function. Um, none of them are superfluous, and removing them means that you have other complexities and downstream impacts that have their own costs and mitigation issues. So we've really worked with the assumption, for the most part, that the ramps remain. Now, having said that, and I'm going to toggle back and forth here, for the olive on-ramps and off-ramps, we are looking at a scenario where, and again, we're not proposing this. This really is just high-level exploration. What happens if we were to take on-ramps and off-ramps out of the equation, how would that affect the financial performance? How might that affect the quality of spaces and development that you might achieve? So um, again, we're really trying to answer questions um, through this exploration. And then the final um, scenario, or case study, is what we're calling a, a mid-density hybrid. It's really a mixture of that public, that private, a range of uses, commercial office, uh, market rate residential, affordable housing, park space, open space, civic space, really um, uh, a, range, a range of uses. And I would argue a, that kind of mixed use solution really hasn't been um, achieved anywhere in the country. Even though there have been lots of lids built, this region has certainly pioneered lid construction. But we, uh, the, the, the notion of this kind of hybrid mixed use, that would be really a, a groundbreaker. But it does bring with it um, a lot of challenges. I guess I wanted to say parenthetically that we've been doing a lot of outreach on the city side, targeted outreach through the Department of Neighborhoods, and the folks that they've connected with really have endorsed this idea, as have our committee, that there isn't a lot of support for a single-use lid, that the notion of just a lot more park um, hasn't really res resonated, nor is there a lot of desire for just corporate office. So I think to have a viable solution, and really the more desirable solution, will be this um, composite of uses. But that absolutely adds to the complexity. And as our study begins to examine this model, we'll begin to, to tease out what is the most cost-effective elements, um, where will private dollars, and to what degree will those be necessary to achieve uh, private uh, benefit or public benefit. And again, on this um, hybrid, we've also studied uh, ramp, ramp removal. Again, ask, um, setting up the, the scenarios to give us answers so that the feasibility study can give direction um, to the next, next phase. I'm going to pass it on okay. Deanna, to Deanna. For Deanna's going to address the feasibility study as well. Um, and I actually mm -hmm. should um, mention to the audience, you are really getting the first sneak peek at, um, at, at the work that's being done, which won't be published probably till late spring or early summer. So I'm very grateful to the, particularly the feasibility study team, including WashDOT, for kind of being willing to preview some of this for us today. Um, Deanna, I know you've got a couple slides as well, and if you could also talk about the challenges, because you have seen projects around the country and around the world, and I know have said to us that it, uh, our topographical situation is challenging, and maybe you could elaborate on that a little bit. Sure. Um, so 
just going back to what this study is really about, and at the core of it, we're really discovering and trying to explore what the future of downtown Seattle could be like. Mm -hmm. And looking at that range and uh, how Lyle just described, the, the bookends of analysis is all we're really getting at at this point. There's going to be a lot of unsolved uh, questions that still will need to be addressed in future steps, but uh, it is very uh, promising to, to see the level of collaboration and just the level of intricacy that we're getting at in terms of answering some of these very challenging questions. Some of the questions that we are addressing and answering, um, as, as I already uh, explained, is uh, where can a lid be built? And so we have confirmed the structural feasibility of lidding I-5 from Madison to, to Denny. Uh, mind us that this was just uh, the scope of work. Uh, there's probably more opportunities to lid both uh, further north and south with uh, different uh, impacts and opportunities for sure. Uh, so, so the first question is the, the, the where can a lid be built? The second question that we're trying to uh, address is what it, can it structurally support? And as Lyle already showed in the, the two test cases that bookend this, this exercise, we're seeing quite a bit of uh, uh, potential for developable space uh, at, the, at the heart of downtown. And exploring what that could be is not something that's the matter of this study. We will not necessarily address what the future, but yes, the different range of opportunities of uses and what that might mean if we toggle on and off some of those public versus private uses. And then um, uh, last is uh, uh, how might they perform financially? How might, how might these test cases perform uh, and how might they be financed and governed? Um, and these are questions that uh, uh, are for the first time being answered, I think, in the US context. So we have um, about uh, 46 uh, LID uh, projects around the country. Out of these 46 lead, LID projects, uh, we have um, the majority of them being parks. So we have 32 parks uh, within this landscape. Uh, and only eight of them have been privately, um, there's been private involvement. And it's important to, to recognize that the private involvement in some of these is pretty simple. It's not as heavily mixed use uh, of a lid as, uh, as the one that we're exploring right now. Um, so for example, just having a parking uh, facility on top of a lid, I mean, that's pretty straightforward governance on how to think about and fund that. And it's, it has its own funding mechanism embedded in, in the use itself. Um, but when we're thinking about mixing so much public and private, we get into very uh, complicated governance uh, structures. So the first uh, consideration is we're looking at a very large lid. Most of these lids are between 5 and 11 acres at most. This is a 17.1 acres uh, of lid uh, if we were to do the entire um, uh, study assessment area. Uh, so, so the size and scale of, of deploying this it would be uh, unprecedented. Number two is the topographical consideration. So we're in the side of a hill. And uh, that really, as we have um, dived into the structural feasibility, we all imagine um, just being able to reconnect Seattle, say, east-west as if it was a flat surface. We really find places around this lid where, um, uh, particularly between Denny and Olive, you have about a 36-foot uh, drop. So really we would be looking at creating additional space, yes, that can support activities or development, but the connection piece that we would be seeking to reestablish would require vertical assist. So some of these considerations around the uh, urban integration of the lid surface and the technical requirements. So for example, WashDOT's uh, design requirements uh, impose a 16.5 vertical clearance. So what this does is, uh, in fact, we have a very complex three-dimensional um, site where, for example, northbound I-5 is actually kind of in between the highest and the lowest points of, of the site. And if you were to add 16.5, we'll find that you're really having a raised table. So if you're walking and trying to cross the street east-west, 
and you were, uh, you know, this was Frogger, you'd have to jump across <laughs> a table uh, to really get to the other side of, of I-5. So that's an important consideration both for future phases of analysis on the urban design uh, aspects uh, of it with the goals of accessibility and restitching the uh, neighborhoods. Um, and, then, um, and then last, uh, I think uh, the, the complexity is in terms of uh, the, the cost uh, and the, the challenges around maintaining uh, infrastructure. And this is a problem that is uh, not only specific to Seattle. We know that this is a challenge of, uh, that every single state state's facing in terms of maintaining the interstate system. But thinking about how we might really add value and, uh, uh, and, and, and enhance the, uh, the essence of what this, this, this study is all about, which is can we reconnect communities and can we start looking at this in ways that unfortunately uh, for funding purposes, we tend not to be able to monetize. So we can monetize jobs and we can monetize uh, infrastructure and uh, value of time in terms of traffic, but we can't monetize the place-based attributes that this lid would bring about, and that's something that we should keep in mind in terms of this feasibility study and what it means when we show uh, really the, the, the cost of opportunity for this project. Thanks, Diana. And I will editorialize just a bit and say, although this study was not tasked, as these guys have emphasized, to do any kind of design, neither building design or lid design, I have been impressed with the thoughtfulness around, for example, building typologies that could help you get from up here to down there because of the topographical challenge. So there's so much good thinking that is, is going on. I've been super impressed. Um, speaking of the interstate, system. I'm going to let Robin um, kind of uh, roll all the way back and talk to us about, about the I-5 freeway corridor. And um, sort of this, the, state of, the state of particularly the section between Marysville and, and Tumwater that I know you and your colleagues have been focused on and, and kind of what the planning effort is around that so the audience can understand how it uh, uh, dovetails into what we are trying to achieve. Yeah, and thank you. It's a pleasure to be here today. Um, we uh, spent a year working, uh, it concluded in May of last year, on a, a high-level vision for I-5 with a number of stakeholders, including DSA and um, uh, uh, Seattle Chamber and Washington Roundtable and Challenge Seattle, a number of cities, including City of Seattle, and ports and transit agencies and nonprofit organizations um, to focus, get everybody under the tent and talk about the long stretch, 107 miles from Olympia basically all the way up to Arlington and how many things uh, there are in common amongst that stretch and uh, had a very large group. And I do want to point that if you don't have one on your chair, there is a document called the I-5 System Partnership, A Call to Action. Maybe some of you have it already, but uh, I'd like to see you walk out with this because it tells a lot more detail than I have an opportunity to share. Um, <clears throat> but uh, the focus really was let's create a vision and then also mutually come together on a set of goals for this stretch in the future. It is one of the few stretches in our region that hasn't gotten a lot of attention. In particular, maintenance, preservation, a lot of the bridges are um, really in dire need of attention. Um, and as well as seismic retrofits. And in fact, between Boeing Field and up uh, to the Ship Canal Bridge, there is an unfunded need for seismic retrofits of over $550 million. And it's no, there's no planning for it at this time. So if we do have the big one hit, 405 will become the lifeline instead of I-5. And that's kind of the thing is there's a lot of corridors that are getting attention, but Interstate 5, which really is the core of the entire network, here and up and down the entire coast is not getting the attention. So that brought a lot of people together to put this call to action report together because a lot's riding on I-5. So that's, that's a takeaway for you. Um, and the focus really was on optimizing performance for people and goods um, and then also um, focusing on the changing needs and values of our communities and our economy. And I'll point out, you can see when it actually was starting to be built in 1969, that's its um, birthday of 50 years, 
And um, the fact that at that time they had no idea what was coming at today in 2020. And likewise, in 2070, we won't have any idea what's going on either. But we have a chance right now to really think about progressive new ideas and a chance to connect communities, which was one of the goals, as you'll see listed here, um, for the future of I-5. And um, as stewards of Interstate 5, uh, WashDOT has, takes it very seriously that um, the public depends on us to maintain, preserve, and operate the system. So we've been walking into these meetings with that you know, kind of fundamental assumption and um, have been trying very hard through the bureaucracy of 7,000 people in WashDOT and many, many <laughs> different disciplines that have roles in, in maintaining, preserving, and operating and planning I-5 that we need to interpret that and bring it to these meetings the best we can so we can bring factual information and, and help the study move along. We definitely uh, want to be a partner and we definitely recognize that moving forward, um, the network, the local network in the city and the interstate need to work together. It's not mutually exclusive, um, that we would need to work together also with the transit agencies and freight community. So it would be you know, a number and the community, local community to talk about all the different options. Um, so. Thanks, Robin. And um, hopefully what you can um, glean from that is, yes, there are some fundamental uh, retrofit needs for the freeway, and while that might seem like an insurmountable obstacle, we actually, I think all of us, including WashDOT, see this as a potential opportunity, meaning that there may be an opportunity to actually marry these two projects in a more cost-efficient way than they could be done independently. Do you want to address that? I just want to say, let's think about it. If, if you do, if you build over I-5 right now, when we haven't done those seismic retrofits, yeah. that would, wouldn't work so well, would it? And so uh, we, we really recognize that we have to partner together and, and, and envision this together. And I will add that that really has been one of the early benefits of this study is just the strong collaboration and coordination with, between the city of Seattle and WashDOT. Clearly that's going to be necessary as we move forward, but uh, a, a great starting point um, just between our organizations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we've heard that comment from everybody that the collaboration so far has been fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, it may mean it takes longer to get to the final goal because it makes you know the situation more complicated, but it will ultimately lead to um, a, a better project that, that uh, serves a lot of purposes at the same time. I want to go back to something Lyle alluded to around ramps. Ramps are something that both the state and the city have a strong interest in. And one of the things that, you know, because, I, you know, again, I'm not exactly an objective moderator, I'm a little bit involved, know that it, it has emerged as sort of a factor in terms of how much of that 17, 18 acres you can capture and how it impacts the potential design and flow of anything we do. And of course, um, we want our city and our freeway to function well. So there's definitely a tension there that is gonna have to be teased out. I'm gonna ask Scott to address it first, kind of more from the citizen versus the um, kind of agency perspective, um, sort of uh, how, how, is, how are you in the group thinking about it and where do you see the potential for maybe more investigation? Yeah, um, so uh, the reason the ramps come up is because uh, just to step back a little bit, one of the you know the the, the core genesis of and the rationale to do this project is to expand uh, the publicly available land that we have in downtown. Um, Seattle as a city has not really kept up with a lot of its peer cities. We don't have uh, kind of a grand downtown park. Um, we heard today there's a need for a downtown school. We need a lot of other civic infrastructure. So. Um, you know, maximizing the land we have is, is important. Um, and some of these ramps uh, could be challenges to doing that. Um, in particular, uh, the ones that we're focused on as advocates is um, Spring Street and Seneca Street ramps. Um, those are the pretty unique uh, designs. You don't normally see a ramp in the middle of your right-of-way. Um, kind of north of the convention center, we have, you know, the more typical right-hand exit uh, and on-ramps. So, um, and 
those two ramps are also adjacent to uh, an existing asset, which is Freeway Park, and it would be great to expand upon that. Um, and First Hill, the First Hill community is particularly starved for open space. Um, it has, it's one of the most dense residential neighborhoods on the West Coast. Um, but that said, just simply removing them without um, thinking about the consequences isn't the right move either. Um, you know, uh, there is kind of a, a different uh, angle, uh, the bigger picture that we have to think about is how, how do we want people to get into and out of downtown in the future? You know, we're expanding light rail, uh, we're building uh, bus rapid transit on Madison Street, we're trying to build a downtown streetcar. Um, there's been a lot of talk of autonomous vehicles and congestion pricing um, and all, all that kind of stuff. So we have to think a little bit more about um, how does this all work a little bit more holistically instead of just focusing on the, on the lid issue. Um, so uh, one, of the, one of the next steps that hopefully is gonna follow up on the feasibility study, and it's actually uh, starting right now, is to do a comprehensive uh, study of the downtown street network, um, including how it integrates with Interstate 5. Um, that's uh, just now being started up by the Seattle Department of Transportation. Um, and the reason for that study didn't come directly out of the LID projects, but it came out of a larger initiative uh, called Imagine Greater Downtown, which um, asked some big questions about how do we increase the quality and quality of public space downtown, and how do we move people around more efficiently. So that street study will be um, an essential part of asking that question, but we think it'll also have a little bit of side benefit in answering some of these questions about um, how Lidding I-5 could work better with the ramp system. Thank you, Scott. And I think maybe I'll just pull it back up a, a little bit and let both Lyle and Robin address that sort of thinking further about the ramps is one example of the next planning steps that need to happen. Um, this feasibility study is really just the first sort of setting the table for a number of planning steps. How do, how do each of you, maybe I'll ask you first, Robin, see the state and the city carrying things forward from here? Yes, first of all, we're gonna put our hat out and have a bake sale. <laughs> and, um, we will all buy your cookies. Oh, <laughs> good, uh, yeah, so there's an issue with funding and mm -hmm. there's a, you know, Olympia is, um, wrestling with that right now. And so that that's certainly a big challenge for us. Um, but I think one of the things is we need to create a, a, another a group that is multidisciplinary and has multiple perspectives like we did with the partnership, um, with the commu local community to talk about what everyone needs. Um, and then recognize again that what one agency does is not in a vacuum. We have to work together. There's absolutely no choice. Um, and so, and that we have to figure out both pieces before we can move. Before we can move forward. Yeah, I'm kind of repeating what I said earlier. Got a Do you want to talk away. about the bill grant? Because I think yeah. people would be I'll interested in that collaboration. Yeah, so uh, the U.S., uh, the federal um, U.S. DOT had, has had Tiger grants in the past. They're now called Build Grant. So Build, just by in its name, doesn't sound very, very favorable to planning. Um, and we did just learn that in the last cycle. Um, they actually did not award any planning dollars, although they were, um, they had some dollars set aside. And we recently had a debriefing, I think it was last week, and heard some encouraging information that uh, the, uh, the feds are going to definitely award some planning dollars and that they, they regarded our work uh, highly. Um, and so I say our work, I should back up and say what it was. And it was a, a combination of the I-5 work, again, from the Tumwater, Olympia area, all the way up the 107 miles, looking at a system level, what's needed, and then also recognizing that downtown, for one thing, is kind of a juggernaut of the entire system in terms of how, how much you can um, add capacity, frankly, and uh, that it also is broken in half, thanks to the interstate built uh, many years ago, and that there's opportunities, and there's also a transferability of lear lessons learned from the Lidding, maybe Shoreline would be a candidate, or East Tacoma. So there's other places along the system that we, and we wanted to recognize there could be transferability to other areas. You mm -hmm. mentioned the fact that this is potentially gonna have multiple functions. Mm -hmm. So you know, so looking at it, but I'll just say one more thing about the system-wide, is that you look at a lot of what comes to us as WashDOT, we often don't pick some of the projects that come our way and they're interchanges that have a very small area of influence and what they do is just move the problems around 
And so we're trying to make sure we're looking holistically and then also looking at kind of the biggest um, piece of the congestion and, and all the demands, which is, is Seattle. Okay, thank you. And then Lyle, from your perspective from the city of Seattle, what do you see happening next, obviously in collaboration with WashDOT on yep. um, the potential for uh, litting these blocks? Wanted to make one point. Um, the holistic mm -hmm. is part of the solution. The other part of the solution is time. Um, as a young planner in 1998, 1998 um, I began working on a plan to take down the viaduct, which was a crazy <laughs> idea at that time. Um, a gr enormous amount of hard work, enormous amount of jurisdictional coordination, and a fortuitous earthquake later, 20 years later, the viaduct, thank you, Marshall, um, has, has, has come down. And uh, um, the, the point is that these things um, really do take the, the long view. Um, it, it, you need the critical vision, but you also just need the, 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 uh, the energy to go that to go that distance, which is why I think it is so important mm -hmm. to have kind of all of us in the room because that's how that's how you get there. Lyle likes to joke that he had hair back when the, he started working on the full <laughs> head of hair. So, um, um, so yeah. and 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 it's you know I think we all feel like it's important for everyone to become enthusiastic about this idea, but it is an idea that may take a very long time to come to fruition. However, if you don't get started. You know, you you will never get there, and so I think that's the philosophy of every. Are you going to discuss time and put some concepts around it? Because when you started and what what your vision is, what you see, and you know, because it'd be nice to kind of be woven into what thought is. I should let Lyle answer that. I'm the <laughs> moderator, so I don't think I'm supposed to answer questions. But I think I think it's a difficult question to answer, but I'll let Lyle take a stab at it from the city's perspective. Sure. And it may not be so much in terms of timeline as next it, the, it's, the steps that will need to happen to get there. Absolutely. I, I think time is going to be a factor here. We're not going to break ground um, anytime soon. I mean, it's worth pointing out right now there is precisely zero dollars from any government entity allocated for this for, the, for this project. Doesn't mean there might not be in the future, but really building a solid case for this proposal and under and thoroughly understanding the limitations and the opportunities. That's where we're at right now. Um, and it may be that we take a different approach. Maybe we don't bite the whole thing off at once. Maybe it is more incremental. But uh, and, and that's that really is that's yet to be determined. But it seems like solid analysis, really understanding what it's going to take to get where we want to be, is that first, that first step. And it might very well be that the most pragmatic way to achieve this is part of a larger reconstruction um, of the corridor. But even that, there's no timeline for that right now. Um, I've been the urban design lead for the 520 um, project with two major lids um, here in Seattle. And I will say that's a very effective way to build a lid when you're reconstructing a highway. It's a simpler time to integrate that kind of solution than when you're trying to do it separately. So it's a little bit to be determined. There will be a call to action at the end, though. I think everyone on this panel has an idea that they want to plant with you, the public, the business community, about what you could do politically just to help move it forward. Um, before you all completely lose heart on this point, I want to bring the conversation back to other places in the world that, that have achieved this, how they've gone about it. I'll get Scott to go first, because I think he has um, uh, a couple detailed examples he wants to talk about from around the country that have been very successful, each in their own way. Yes, I don't think I have images of the actual projects, but we can certainly bring up the map again. Um, no, again, this is not a new idea. It's been done by um, other cities, other state transportation departments across the country since the interstate system. Actually, before the interstate system was even in place, it's um, some of the earliest examples were over just uh, small highways and roads down in California, in New York City. Um, but you know, the more modern examples, of course, offer some really good information on how much does it cost. Um, they also uh, go into the variety of motivations. Now, Seattle, uh, they're interested, the reason we're interested in this in Seattle is just um, the, the idea for um, 
land supply um, and uh, providing uh, equitable public benefits for the, our diverse population. Other cities are focused more on economic development or pedestrian mobility and whatnot. Um, but two, two of the ones that we, play, we pay close attention to are uh, Clyde Warren Park in Dallas, Texas, which is a five acre park over a state highway. Um, they did a really great job with the design. They have, uh, there's a restaurant and food truck facilities built into it so they get active use throughout the day. Uh, but the funding model was also interesting. They had funding from the city, state, and federal government uh, for half of it. And the other half was provided all by private donations. And of course, Dallas is a pretty uh, well-known uh, petroleum town, so they have a lot of good uh, uh, corporate uh, support there just for civic beautification and whatnot. But it just points to the idea that people uh, will put their money where they see a good idea that benefits the community. Um, and then, kind of the, again, on the opposite of the end of the spectrum was mentioned Capital Crossing in Washington, D.C., um, also about a five-acre lid. Uh, that, uh, the majority of it is covered in about 10 or 11-story office buildings. So. Um, there, uh, Washington, D.C. has a relatively low height limits and low density limits, so they didn't have a lot of developable land. So that uh, drove up land values and made that uh, complex option uh, pencil out for that developer. You know? um, and Washington, D.C. has had numerous of these type of um, air rights developments before, so there's a history there. Uh, but that just points to the fact that um, there's a variety of different things you can do. Um, another project that we looked at in, in close detail recently, uh, it's not a freeway project, but it is over a rail yard, is uh, Hudson Yards in New York City, uh, which we understand is the most expensive slash biggest slash most ex exuberant uh, <laughs> real estate development going on in the country right now. Um, and, there's, uh, and there's some uh, debatable questions about how the urban design quality of that project ended up being, but it definitely um, had some public benefits as well of open space and reconnecting streets and whatnot. Um, as, as advocates, uh, we actually received an anonymous donation a couple years ago to put together a detailed case study book um, of 10 of these projects from around the country. Um, and Liz will go into uh, a little bit about the book, but suffice to say, uh, the process of writing that book and doing the research and getting contacts in all those cities was uh, very healthy and very helpful to this effort here in Seattle because it shows that we're not going alone. There's a lot of lessons uh, that we can learn from, from others who have led the way. In the interest of time, I might actually have to skip to the next question. We have about five more minutes before Q&A. Is that right? Um, because I want probably Lyle first and then maybe Scott, because he's been talking to the public for so long about this project, to talk about these dual issues of what kind of feedback have we had from the public so far about what they want, and what does that imply for this balance, potentially, of public-private investment? And I know that's sort of a circular issue. So if you could maybe tease that out a little bit, Lyle, for the audience. Yeah. Um, as I alluded to earlier, um, the feedback that we've done, and again, it's been fairly limited. We recognize the next phase, any next phase would have to have a much more robust um, public outreach and engagement process. But working through our advisory committee, working through targeted neighborhood input, um, there really is an interest in a diversity of solutions here. Um, and um, there, I don't think anyone wants to see just one flavor. Uh, we've heard from neighborhood groups, they say they don't want just this to be an extension of downtown. Um, even downtown advocates recognize that this is an opportunity for public amenity, um, um, civic space. So I think everyone, based on the feedback that we've heard, really wants to see um, a diversity of active, vital, interesting uses. I think a little bit of the, the, the balance is to what degree do we rely on private development to help fund those? And to what degree can private development fund um, this whole lid. The whole lid is a very expensive um, proposition. And as our study, one key outcome of our study will help us know what is the kind of optimal balance of uses um, as we move forward, recognizing that I don't think anyone would be um, happy with a lid that didn't provide some element of civic return or some element of affordable um, housing, given that is such a critical issue of our day. Thank you. Scott, do you have anything to add? Yeah, to that? that's a pretty good summary. Um, as, as, a, as an advocacy group, we've been fairly neutral on what exactly the outcome is. Um, so for the past 
four or five years by this point now, um, we've seen our role as to be the, uh, the, 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 the bringing people together, the matchmaker. Um, we've hosted workshops and tours and design shreds and whatnot. Um, and you know, a lot of the, uh, the, the scribbles and the designs that come out of it end up being something like this. You know, it's not all park, it's not all buildings. Um, it's, it's a mix of uh, needs that people see in the city today and probably open space, uh, affordable housing, and uh, civic facilities such as libraries, uh, community centers are probably the things that really bubble to the top. Um, along with opportunities to potentially make walking and biking both more possible and more convenient uh, between the east and west side of the freeway. Thanks, and I will add my one little editorial comment, which is I think it shows how much we've grown up as a city. People are not asking for 18 acres of park. They want to solve other problems as well around affordability, social inclusivity, um, and and that's been really interesting, and there's been a fair amount of consensus, not in the exact details of what that formula is, but at a larger philosophical level, that this could serve a lot of constituencies. I wanna make sure the audience understands that point, because then we're gonna move on and, and wrap up, that the, that the land that gets created ha does have value, and that's where the potential for private investment comes from. Does, did that? Did that come through clearly? And then where that's not gonna be used privately, that's where the public dollars would have to come in if it wants to be the parts of it that wanna be open space or uh, civic buildings, okay. Um, this is the opportunity for each one of the panelists in their, um, in their closing remarks to sort of hit on two things. One is, what's been the most important, interesting piece of learning so far? from being involved in this process, and what's your call to action for the audience, if you could ask them to do or support one thing? I'll start with you, Robin. I could see you looking at I've been staring at you. you <laughs> she know. does that in meetings. <clears throat> well, I said that it, a lot's riding on I-5. This is part of the first one, counting it as one, is that um, it's not just a washout project by far. We're talking about partnership. Everyone needs Interstate 5 to work. It doesn't necessarily need to be oriented towards cars, but the, the second thing is we can't do it alone. We need to reach out for grants. We also need our electeds to understand. That's why you have this part, uh, call to action report. Um, and it, we got as far as the Senate uh, in the uh, last session and thought it was likely going to be in the consolidated and it didn't make it, um, but we gotta keep trying. And so I don't think this session because this is really a short session and there's a lot of other things to clean up, but next cycle there's talk about another investment package. So we will probably be reaching out to the network again to uh, try to move something forward in, in, at the state level. Um, so we could, would appreciate your help on that. And then at the federal level, we're talking about potentially chasing the build grant again as a joint partners with WashDOT and, and, and Seattle. And so we'll be looking for a number of support letters there as well. Okay, great. Uh, Deanna, how would, you, how would you summarize the biggest aha moments or just important things that you want the audience to take away, I guess, and then what would be your call to action to the audience? Um, I would say there's, this, this study has actually revealed, you know, dozens upon dozens of aha moments <laughs> um, from uh, understanding that uh, there is a huge need to uh, define uh, clear policy guidelines around what the future of downtown Seattle should be uh, because we tend to try to address all of Seattle's challenges through these mega projects and to understand that they have to be district level at least at the, at the most granular level is not the site level it's the district level and so having an understanding of those dynamics uh, uh, which are actually now playing out in, in projects that are now built and underway, like Capital Crossings, which started out uh, with a much broader mix of uses uh, 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 proposed for it, uh, with a lot more That's housing. That's the project in D.C. Right, the, the, yep. the that, project that in Washington, D.C. Yeah, with the office buildings. Yeah. And so right now, they're, for example, uh, not uh, considering uh, some of the housing component of that project because the district is providing so much more affordable housing going online in that district. So it doesn't make a lot of sense for that lid to, to, to provide uh, that affordable housing and instead they're thinking about a solution like a hotel. 
So uh, I think uh, the big takeaway is that whatever we actually land on, uh, understanding is just, it's merely a blueprint for the future. Uh, innovation and technology are also going to be uh, such disruptors uh, in terms of defining the future of this uh, 0.8 miles of, of facility. And uh, what there's a lot of questions that we weren't able to, to address or tackle, but there's things that we're actually seeing as being very hopeful in other parts of North America. So we have Quayside uh, in Toronto where uh, Sidewalk Labs is looking at uh, redeveloping this entire uh, piece of the waterfront and where they're finding, for example, that they can build uh, with timber uh, prefabricated pre, uh, pre 60-story buildings. That is going to make for a much lighter structure that right now we're considering if we were to look at uh, the, the load capacity of the lid, then the cost to support those very heavy steel and concrete buildings, if they were made by on timber, we could really think of a much more affordable lid to support the same amount of development. So these considerations and disruptions should be kept in mind at the end of this study and uh, really keep this as a blueprint and a, a bookending exercise for future conversation. Okay, thank you. Scott, um, what is, the, what is the most important thing you want the audience to take away and what's, what's the call to action? Uh, I'll, just, I'll just say uh, one of the things I've uh, noticed, just <coughs> learned while working on this project is there's a real civic ap appetite in this town for big projects. Um, we had the Denny Regrade, Pike Place Market, Seattle Center, uh, now with the waterfront. It's not too early to start thinking about the next one and we're really finding people are interested in growing the city this way. Um, the most important thing that folks can do in this room uh, is to uh, simply get involved by just following our advocacy work. Uh, there's a mailing list uh, somewhere around being passed around, uh, and we update folks on what the city's doing, what we're doing. Um, you can help by introducing us to uh, your corporate boards, your other community leaders that you know. Uh, we're trying to build as big of a coalition and a tent as possible, because that's the only way this is going to work. Um, and of course, you can donate to our efforts as well. We're all volunteer run. so. Great, thank you, Lyle. Um, aha moment <laughs> was the recognition that the folks living around um, our study area are not all wealthy. In fact, there's very high levels of poverty, specifically um, elderly folks in poverty. So that the notion that this is just a nice thing for rich people um, couldn't be um, more false. And I think when I talk about communicating, I think that's a really important thing that we all communicate. This, this is something that's going to make um, many people's lives better. Uh, the second um, point that I would add in terms of communication is that we are so lucky to have a relatively robust um, downtown. There are so many cities in North America where that is not the case. Um, and that is um, not just the result of luck, it's actually the result of many, many people over generations caring about this place. And we need to continue that legacy with this kind of, with this kind of project. Great, thank you. Um, we're gonna open it up for Q&A. I think the session ends at 3.30 and it's- 3.15. 3.15, oh, okay. Um, so we have time for a couple of questions. I'll, that, I'll, I'll work my way across the room. Craig? So uh, one of the key elements of this was the value of the land you're creating, as you pointed out. And, and it, again, I thank you so much for what you've done. I think it's just wonderful. Can you give me just your ballpark of what the value, the high-end value of the land is, assuming that it was all used for commercial purposes? I understand that some of it will go for affordable housing or parks and open spaces. But if you just, on your bookend, said, this is, we're just going to go sell this at market rate, Take, taking into account the structural considerations, I assume. Oh, right. Right. That is, that's their, I think that's their maximum yeah. development scenario that's that, they're, the maximum that they're modeling. We're crunching those numbers right now. Uh, Deanna, would you want to hazard a, a number, or is it just too premature? Stay tuned. <laughs> yeah, I, think. So, I think, Craig, the good news is that question is going to be answered. The maximum development scenario is one of the bookend scenarios that they are going to produce that number. Because that's critically important it, yeah. information if you're going to figure out how this whole thing might pencil. And that's exactly what we're looking at right now. We'll know within the next two to three months, right? I, but, but if, 
every square foot doesn't support the same amount of building, and so that's yeah. being factored yeah. into yeah. the analysis. More structure, we get more value. Yeah, yeah, okay. I'll just, my job's not on the line, so I'll just, I, yes. can, I, can, I can hazard that. You know, when we did some unscientific <laughs> research and looked at some sales of vacant land in downtown, of which there's not many left. But uh, like this site, which we're sitting on here, and the convention center site, and a few other properties, it was averaging uh, about $1,000 a square foot or more. So, but it's probably gone up since then. Right, so. again, tempered by the structural considerations right. of, of, if you're in the middle of the span or on the edge of the span. Yes? Is there any possibility to sell air rights to the properties to the east for I'm going to let the planner answer yeah, there, that. There is a whole raft of issues. That is an opportunity. I think another issue is how do we make sure that as we create great land and great value, we're not increasing the cost of natural affordable housing that's maybe adjacent and perhaps acquisition. There's going to be a whole range of um, issues, not just within our study area, but thinking about impacts and effects and opportunities around it. That's, uh, it, I think that'll be a, ne a necessary next step, but we're certainly thinking about the potential impacts, absolutely. It is being discussed, okay, so yes, you've had your hand up. Um, this is kind of a long-winded and complicated question, I hope I get it across properly, but um, so you guys kind of shied away from giving a time frame, and I understand that, but with projects of this magnitude in the past, it's usually been around 20 years. Um, and there's a lot going on in the technology field of transportation right now. Elon Musk is doing hyperspeed. Um, my concern is in 20 years, our transportation system may change very drastically and rapidly um, to where our requirements for the, the interstate, um, if we put in a hypertube or a magnet train, may completely change the feasibility of, of living it. And I'm wondering if there's plans and studies in place for that. Robin, I think yeah. we should let you answer that one. And I will I will actually pile on with, um, there is planning going on right now for a high-speed train. Do you see any potential synergies there? Um, but I think that's a really interesting question and in, in, that I know Robin and her team are thinking about. Yeah, and so we right now have kind of a framework uh, for moving forward that uh, has goals and potential strategies and a lot of the things that you talked about are things that we've been pondering. And um, I, will, I would like to emphasize that the DOT is not married to having every one of these a general purpose lane by far. We're all about moving people, recognizing that this footprint could be very different in the future. There still is a need for freight mobility. There still are people that are coming through and not stopping. So we have to understand all the demands and the need to, to serve them. But uh, at, at the end of the day, there could be fat lanes, freight and transit, fat lanes. Um, there could be, you know, there could be a lane just for automated vehicles that are platooning, including freight. And, and we've talked about a lot of that over the last, the year of, of work we had, and that that would need to be a next phase. And when we do some scenario analysis that could throw a whole bunch of different ideas out, and then we could look at different opportunities. <clears throat> okay, great. Um, did that? Yeah. Okay. Uh, are we out of time, or do we have time for one more? Okay, I sir. Who owns the air The state. The state. It's the interstate is well. It's federal, given to the state for a stewardship role. So. We have a lot of there, and yeah, we get have, the extra benefit of yet another jurisdictional the federal, yeah, the authority feds to work with. Have a whole bunch of bureaucracy also, so yeah. piling sure. it on. Other places have solved for that. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, okay, I think we should wrap this up, but I want to talk about about the books. Um, we have, I think, thirty-five pairs of books, and we have twice that many people in the room, which is fantastic. But the first thirty-five people who who sign up for our Lit I-5 mailing list will get a pair of books. Um, I hope, I'm not gonna create a scrum by saying that. And Be Beatrice, if you could uh, referee that, that would be fantastic. And there are, it's a pair of books. One is the one, is the one um, that, co that covers 10 really interesting case studies from around the country. The other summarizes um, a charrette 
a series of, of charrettes that we got help with Department of Neighborhoods and funding and, and worked with Lyle's team to get a, uh, dozens and dozens of architects from around the city to brainstorm vision and create a bunch of really beautiful design ideas. So it's really just inspiration, um, uh, eye candy, but very well thought out eye candy, I should say. So, um, and if you really would like a set of books and end up not being able to get a pair today, do put your name on the mailing list anyway and write us a little note and we'll figure out how to get you a pair. How's that? Thank you very much. Thank you.